Well, most of us, if not all of us, enjoy a good cloak and dagger story. We like stories in films about spies, undercover work, behind-the-scenes reconnaissance, and secret intelligence. And in every cloak and dagger story, there's that moment when one of the parties says something like this. How did this happen? They looked like us. They spoke like us. They acted like us. I mean, we thought that they were one of us. It's like they crept in unnoticed. They infiltrated our community. I don't understand. How did this happen? These are the sobering thoughts, the sobering statements and realizations of a person or a community that recognizes that they have become victims of espionage. See, we may love stories about this sort of thing. We may love stories about espionage, but we don't love being the victims of it. We don't like being the one who is duped. We don't love being the ones who fell asleep and allowed the enemy to infiltrate. And this is certainly the case of the church. So how do we recognize intruders? How do we protect ourselves? How do we remain watchful and faithful? Well, please open your Bible to the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. If you go to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and you hang a left, one page, literally one page, you will find Jude. If you do not have your Bible with you this morning, should be a Bible under the seat in front of you, and you can find Jude on page 964 in that Bible. We are going to be living in verses 1 through 16. But to give us the greater context of the letter, we're going to read the whole thing, all 25 verses. This is the good word of God. Let's heed this together. Let's read. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people... Also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they don't understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the glory or the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And with mercy, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is God's word. He is worthy to be praised. Let's say that together. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would turn the lights on now in our dim hearts and minds. Show yourself 
to us through your word, Lord. We ask that we would not just be informed by your word this morning, but that we would be transformed by it. Cause us to behold the risen Christ. And Lord, I do pray that you would strengthen your weak servant now to proclaim your word faithfully. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, as we just read, Jude's letter only weighs in at 25 verses. And though it's small, packs a major punch, doesn't it? It is small, but it's mighty. And one of Jude's primary tasks is to help the church recognize false teachers and professors amongst them. Like an episode of Scooby-Doo, Jude's goal is to teach the church how to unmask the enemy. And we need to recognize that Jude is a wartime letter. It's a letter written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the church of yesterday and the church of today as we walk through the last days of this dying world. And if you're taking notes this morning, here's the main idea of Jude 1 through 16. The church is kept for Christ and to contend for the faith, while false teachers are kept for judgment. The church is kept for Christ and to contend for the faith, while false teachers are kept for judgment. And flowing from this point is our outline. Kept for Christ. Verses 1 and 2. Kept to contend, verses 3 through 4, and then kept for judgment, verses 5 through 16. Okay, point one, kept for Christ, verses 1 through 2. Let's read those once more. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved In God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In the opening verses of this letter, we find that Jude is the author. And as it states in verse 1, he says that he is a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. With this, Jude is stating, as Paul does in so many of his letters to the church, that he is writing in service. To God. And we find there in verse 1 that he is the brother of James. And there's great consensus in church history that both Jude and James are both brothers of Jesus Christ himself. And it's interesting that Jude doesn't say here at the beginning of the letter, listen to me, I'm Jesus' brother. You hear me? No, instead he writes with a humble pen as a servant of Jesus Christ. And so Jude is writing with humility. He is writing with weight and authority to Christ's church. And he is writing to those, I just love this, 
called, beloved by the Father, and kept for or by Jesus Christ. And right here at the outset, we see that Jude upholds the incredible truth that God is the initiator of salvation. He is the one who calls his people. He is the one who loves his people. He is the one that keeps his people. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that wonderful? Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants the church, all of those who have been called and saved by pure grace, by no work or merit of their own, to recognize and remember that they are sovereignly, beautifully, and gloriously kept for Jesus. Nothing will ever change that. That's good news. That's good news for us. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. She is kept and cared for until the day of Christ's return. And like a parent lovingly watching over and protecting their children, God in and through Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, is keeping and preserving his people, his church. And the church of yesterday and the church of today, the church of tomorrow will be ultimately, as Jude writes, kept for Christ. Well, Jude then goes on and offers a prayer. And he prays that mercy, peace, and love will be multiplied to the church. Beloved, is this your prayer for the church? Is this your prayer? Do you pray like this? Do you pray that mercy, peace, and love would abound here at EBC? May it be. May it be. And let's take a page from Jude's book, shall we? Jude says some hard things in this letter. He says some convicting things, some challenging things in this letter, and yet he begins here. He begins with prayer. We are not only to be convictional and fierce for the truth. We are also to be merciful and peaceful and loving to others. Because in the Christian life, deep mercy and deep conviction go together. They are simpatico, two sides of the same coin. Well, the church is kept for and by Christ. And Jude wants us to know that and to rest in that before he gives us, the church, our marching orders before telling us that we are kept to contend. And that brings us to our second point, kept to contend. Read with me once again, verses 3 through 4. 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude originally and eagerly wanted to write to the church of what he calls our common, our common salvation. He wanted to desperately encourage God's flock, to remind them of the beauty of salvation, to remind them of the unity that they have in the gospel and their commonality in the faith. And like a commander riding to a distant unit in the midst of wartime, he wished to tell them about their progress. He wished to tell them their common goal to remind them to stay the course. But instead, verse 3, Jude states, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is writing out of necessity, appealing with the church to contend, to contend for the faith. And that word contend is chock full of nutrients. It's pregnant with meaning. That word in the Greek is where we get our word agonize. It carries a military weight. See, the church is to contend, to struggle, to strive, to give every effort, to fight. For what? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So, What is the faith? The word faith here is not being used in the same way that the pastoral author of of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. Nor is Jude using the word the faith here, the words the faith here, used as an uh, expression of active trust in God. No, the faith here is the traditional teaching of Christ and the apostles. The faith is all that is contained in the word. This book. And ultimately, it is the good news. The euangelion, the gospel message. And that message can be summed up in four words. Four words. God, man, Christ response. You you could say them with me. God, man, Christ response. In the beginning, God created the world. It was perfect. And he created man, male and female, and he set them in the world to work and to keep it. He created them to be his people in his place under his good and perfect rule. But Adam and Eve rebelled. They threw off his authority and ate the fruit of the tree that that they were told not to eat. They disobeyed. They sinned against God. And because of that day, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ 
came to this earth declaring repent and believe the good news, the gospel of Jesus. He came to rescue sinners. Christ came, the God-man, to reconcile once again God and man. And he did this by going to the cross and bearing the weight of sin, his people's sin upon himself. He died for his church. And what should our response be? To repent of our sin and to turn to him in ongoing repentance and faith. For Christ is the only way of salvation. If you have more questions about this, at any point this morning, I'll be standing in the back after the service. There is nothing I would rather talk with you about than this gospel message, this truth that God has come to this earth in Christ and saved sinners like you and I. Well, pressing further into Jude, he says in verse 3, The faith is unchanging. This message is unchanging. It is once and for all delivered to the saints. And it is not to be perverted. And so, beloved, if we are going to contend, then we better know the content of the word and the gospel. We ought to memorize that pattern that we just saw, God, man, Christ response, and be ready to offer that to all of those in our lives around us. And so, are you storing up the word and gospel in your heart and mind? Are you fighting the good fight? Are you contending for the glorious content of the gospel? You and I don't get a pass on this. This imperative is for the church. But I fear in our day that we often succumb to either passivity Or we succumb to sentimentality. We don't want to ruffle the feathers. We don't don't really want to offend anyone. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But this is life or death. This is heaven or hell. And the gospel is worth it. It's worth it. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. Jude is not asking us to contend for your views on politics or the pandemic in real life or social media. He's not asking you to contend for your earthly possessions. He's not asking you to contend for your views on secondary or third-level theological issues, though doctrine is worth both discussion and disagreement. He is saying contend for the faith. Contend for the gospel. It is ultimate. 
Well, Jude then tells the church who they are to contend against. There in verse 4, he writes that certain people have crept into the church unnoticed, and they have three distinguishing marks. The first mark is that they were long ago designated for condemnation. Jude is tying these people back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the place where we first see the gospel in the Bible with its judgment and its beauty. So keep your hand in Jude. It's kind of difficult to find in the New Testament. Keep your hand in Jude, but turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here God is speaking to Satan in the garden after Adam and Eve just ate the forbidden fruit. And he declares that there will be enmity between two groups, two offspring, two seeds, Satan and Christ. Those that are in Satan and those that are in Christ. And they will contend against one another. And ultimately, Christ will be the one who crushes the head of the servant, of the the serpent. See, from the beginning, there has always been two seeds a seed of Christ and the seed of Satan. There's always been two books a book of life and a book of judgment. There have always been two cities a city of God and a city of man. And from the beginning, they have been at war with one another, and that war rages on today. And Jude here is warning the church of the bad seed creeping in, like thorns and weeds infiltrating a beautiful garden. These people, those that pervert the gospel and pervert grace, are spreading death. So first we see that these people are designated for judgment from long ago. But second we see, their second mark is that they are ungodly. In these 16 verses, that word ungodly is mentioned about five times. These folks are marked by ungodliness. They are not of God, they are of Satan and the world. Third, we see that they are marked in this reality that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These people are perverting grace. They are not contending for the gospel. They are perverting the gospel. They are not mastered by Christ, but instead they are mastered by their flesh. In the words of Luther... They regard themselves, not Christ, 
as their Lord. These people distort and twist the gospel of grace. In church history, these people have been called antinomians, kind of a nerdy word. Antinomians, anti being against, nomos, God's law, God's word, God's sovereign grace. Antinomians cheapen grace by presuming upon it and using it to validate sensuality, sexual sin, and any sin for that matter. And don't we all have the propensity to do this? Not only do we want to be kings and queens, the Lord of our lives, we also have the ability to twist grace to validate our lust for the things of this world. And beloved, I was deeply convicted of this in my own life and in the life of this church this week as I was working through this letter. And I want to unpack some of that conviction with you now, this morning. See, not all of us are, are doing this publicly in, in a teaching capacity, but this is a warning to the church. And so I have four questions for us. Do you use and abuse grace to validate your lust for more earthly treasures? Do you use and abuse grace to validate objectifying men and women, to validate the use of pornography, or to validate the use of perverted television? Do you use and abuse grace to validate godless Self-sufficiency. Do you use and abuse grace to validate coarse sexual speech or any sensual sin of the body or mind? Beloved, we are either conforming to Christ individually and together corporately. We're either conforming to, to the image of Christ or we are conforming into the image of sin. We are either taking our thoughts captive to Christ, or our thoughts are captive to sin. We are either walking in the light together, or we're walking in darkness. Beloved, grace is not a license to sin. Playing with sin is like playing with fire. Give it a chance and it will, it will consume you. It will consume you. And Jude is here warning us to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Well, again, ultimately Jude is reminding the church to contend and to hold fast to the word and to the gospel when intruders inev inevitably come, teaching a different gospel to itching ears. And you can almost hear Paul's exhortation 
to the church in Galatia where he says, if anyone comes to you proclaiming a different gospel, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Beloved, may we watch our doctrine. May we watch our lives. And may we contend for the gospel. With the Lord's help. Well, thus far in Jude's letter, he has told the church that we are kept for Christ. And he has told the church that we are kept to contend. And in this next section, Jude further unfolds verse 4 by giving us picture after picture after picture, example after example after example of what it looks like to be kept for judgment. And that brings us to point three, kept for judgment. Before we walk through this section, there are a couple of things that we should notice and consider. It is interesting that throughout Jude's letter, he doesn't give a specific title to these heretics. He doesn't give us the the deep, nitty-gritty details of all the specifics of their false teaching. But he does show us in this section what we are to look out for. And further, I want us to notice in advance that Jude is teaching us in this section how to better understand and read our Bible. It sounds provocative to say, but there is one page in the Bible that I would like to rip out. And it's that page that comes between the Old and New Testament. It's a pretty much a blank page. It just says New Testament. And the reason I want to rip that out is because the Bible tells one story. Yes, there is an Old Covenant and a New Covenant in Christ. But it is telling one covenant story. One story of grace. One story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It is telling one story of mercy for those who are kept for Christ and judgment for those who reject Christ and his authority. So listen closely. Here is Jude bringing forth his first evidence against these false teachers. Verse 5, unbelieving Israel. Look there with me. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I am reading out of the ESV translation, and I appreciate what they've done here. They have made it clear in Jude's letter that Jude is referring to Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt. For he ultimately rescues his people. He sets them free and he keeps them. But we see that there were also those who were destroyed because of unbelief. Not from Egypt, but from within Israel. You don't have to to turn there, but Jude is pulling from Numbers chapter 14 here, where it says in verse 11 that those 
who did not believe were disinherited. In effect, they were spiritually destroyed. And here is the lesson for us. We're often quick to to look out there and think of and speak of unbelievers out there in the world. But Jude is making it quite clear that these intruders that are kept for judgment once seem to be un, well, orthodox Christian who have strayed into unorthodoxy. So we ought to watch our doctrine closely. Jude is saying that these false teachers ultimately rejected Christ in their unbelief. And they have been judged and they will be judged just like unbelieving Israel. Well, Jude now moves to his second evidence. The angels. Look there with me. Verse 6. And the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, there has been a ton, and I mean, I read it, a lot of ink spilled over this particular verse. Over whether or not it's speaking about the angels that fell from grace back at the beginning around Genesis 1, or if it is speaking of the angels who bred with humans in Genesis chapter 6. And ultimately, I don't know. But here's what we do know from Scripture. Spiritual warfare is real. There are good angels and there are bad angels all around us. The spiritual forces, these two armies, are in a constant war with one another. And these angels fight against us or they fight for us. As Hebrews 1 verse 14 states, good angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Well, pressing further in, Jude tells us what we need to know and why he includes the angels as an evidence against these intruders of the faith. These angels forsook their position of authority. They threw off God's authority and instead became their own authority. And because of that, they are kept in darkness. They are kept for judgment. Well, in this divine courtroom, Jude now brings his third evidence. Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah, verses 7 through 8. Verses 7 through 8, Sodom and Gomorrah. Go ahead and look there with me. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Sodom and Gomorrah are a picture of judgment. Why? Because the people rejected God's authority by throwing off 
his good and perfect design for his creation. Specifically, his design for sexuality and marriage between one man and one woman. And instead, they wholeheartedly embraced homosexuality and bestiality. We also know from the book of Ezekiel that that these people, the people of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, were prideful and lacked concern for the poor. And because of all of this, they were judged by God. And for their sinful rejection of him, they received hell. For the wages of sin is death outside the sovereign grace of Christ alone. One commentator put it this way, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is not merely a historical curiosity. It functions typologically as a prophecy of what is in store for the rebellious. And in like manner, verse 8, these grace-perverting intruders rejected God's word and authority, and instead, it says that they relied on their own dreams. These folks come to the table saying, God told me in a dream, instead of God showed me in the text. And in doing this, they defiled themselves. They rejected God's word and authority, and instead, were kept for judgment. They were judged just as they rejected Christ. And on the last day, God will have the final word, and he will judge the living and the dead. And this is when Jude brings in his first witness to bring this point home. He brings forth... Michael, the archangel. Verses 9 through 10, look there with me. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. I know what you're, you're probably thinking about this point. Uh, what? <laughs> Jude, what's, what's going on here? What's going on here in verse 9? I'm not sure I've read this in the Old Testament. Well, you haven't. Because this is an excerpt from a very popular Jewish writing that was circulating in the church around that time called the Testament of Moses. And here, brilliantly, Jude is using popular writing of the day to prove his point. He is using an illustration from a contemporary writing from that day that told the story of a battle between the archangel Michael and Satan over Moses' body. And before anyone in this room thinks, what in the world, this letter, this section, this is just too weird, this is just too crazy, well, all you got to do is flip the TV on. The world is obsessed with the supernatural. It's no wonder that the word sets it straight and, and gives us categories to work in. 
But the question is still, why is Jude bringing this illustration, this witness against these false teachers? What's the point? Well, the main point is that Satan has been and will be ultimately judged. Not by man, not by angel, as we just saw, but by God himself. This is why Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. He reserves judgment for him. For judgment ultimately belongs to the Lord alone. Well, this witness also serves as a contrast to these false teachers there in verse 10 who blaspheme and judge all that they don't understand and ultimately act like unreasoning animals and are a judgment unto themselves instinctively. Harsh words for a harsh point. Satan and all those who are his, including false teachers who don't turn to Christ, are and will be kept for judgment. And you can hear the gavel slam once again. But there's more. Jude then brings in his fourth, fifth, and sixth evidences. Cain, Balaam, and Korah, verses 11 through 13. Look there with me. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Here, Jude begins with a woe. And no, this is not an homage to the surfers and skaters of my home state of California. Whoa, man. No, it's, it's neither frontier slang. Whoa, horses. It's not. It's a judgment. It's a word of judgment against false teachers, against these specific false teachers. For they are just like Cain, who in Genesis chapter 4 killed his brother and abandoned God for the world. They are just like Balaam, who was a prophet, who traded God for money. He was hired by a pagan country to curse the people of God. You can read more about that in Numbers chapter 23. They are just like Korah, a rebel found in Numbers chapter 16, who resented the authority of Moses and Aaron and ultimately resented God's authority. These false prophets, like these three men, are kept for judgment. But Jude doesn't stop there. With poetic fervor, he lays in, he, he presses in further. He tells the church, verses 12 through 13, that these people are an aroma of death to the life and fellowship of the church. For they are like hidden reefs in the ocean, ready to make shipwreck of anyone who sails into it. They are like shepherds or those who don't protect care and feed the sheep, but they rather feed themselves. They are dry clouds that bring drought, not blessing, and are swept by the spirit of the age. 
They are dead, fruitless trees, not once, but twice uprooted. They are not calm and peaceful waves, but they are the waves of chaos that bring shame and struggle. They are wandering stars lost in the unending darkness of night. Jude is telling the church to be watchful for men and women like these. He is telling them to be careful. He is telling us to be watchful and careful for folks like these. He is teaching us how to recognize and unmask spies. Well, Jude goes on and he brings in his second and final witness. He brings Enoch. He brings another writing, contemporary writing of that day to to bring further judgment upon these people. And did you notice in that last, in these last verses, 14 through 16, that the word ungodly is used several times. Let's just read them before we close. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And with this, Jude concludes using Midrash from the book of Enoch to further press in and further judge these intruders, these grumbling, discontented, selfish, boasting people who show partiality. And they are exposed and found kept for judgment. Waiting to be fully and finally judged by Christ on the last day. Well, we should, we should conclude. Beloved, we live between two days. The day of Christ's ascension and the day of Christ's return. Another way to think about this is that we live in the already and the not yet. And in and through Christ, Satan, false teachers, and the world have been judged. They are being judged and will finally on that last day be judged. When Christ returns and brings these final days to a close. But on that last day, make no mistake, we will all have an opportunity to stand in that divine courtroom before the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And if you have turned to Christ in ongoing repentance and faith, 
you have turned to him alone for salvation, then on that day, when, when Satan and his legion bring every evidence and witness of your sin against you into that courtroom and lays it all out, and God asks, what is your plea? Who reject Christ and his authority? Beloved, you can say with assurance, if you have turned to Christ in repentance and faith, you can say with assurance, there is no condemnation for me because of that man, Jesus Christ. He has kept me and he will hold me fast. Let's pray. Take a moment now and, and confess all of the ways that, that you have in, in subtle and grand ways perverted the grace of Christ and the gospel. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that for those who have turned to you, those who have been unfaithful in sin, but look to you, the faithful one who has been gracious and merciful to sinners. Lord, I, I pray that we would be a church individually and together that are quick to go to the gospel for assurance and quick to look to Christ in that final day with assurance of his return. Lord, help us to live between these two days with hope and assurance Keep us, Lord, until that day for our good and for your glory. We praise you for the work of your son that spoke a final word over your people. And we thank you, Lord, for his work. It's in the name of Christ that we all pray. Amen.